Anyway, on that note, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. I've called this message, He's Got It. Because it's the best I could come up with as I started to spend time in this word. You know, in Mark chapter 4, there are four parables. The first two have been done in the last few weeks by Mark and then Riley. I haven't heard those messages yet, but I've heard of the effect of those messages. And so thank you big time to you, Riley, and to Mark and for serving this church so effectively while we were gone. And now today I want to do the last two parables in Mark chapter 4. Once we get to later on, even next week, the parables finish and we start to go on to different things. But these are the last two of a set of four parables. So we're going to read from verse 26 to the end of verse 34. It's Jesus speaking and it reads as follows. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather once again around your word today, we recognize afresh that this word is active. It has feet, it runs after us, it has hands, it seeks to grasp us. And so, Lord, would we continue our worship now, not through song, but through listening and preaching. Lord, did your word come alive in our hearts? Would you speak to our hearts? Above my voice, would we hear your voice? Because you are the only voice we want to hear. Lord, would that be so by your grace? Amen. You know, one book that I'm sure you're aware of, I'm sure many of you will have read, to be honest with you, is C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's an absolute classic, isn't it? I remember being read it when I was a kid. I think my parents have read it when they were kids. We've read it to our children. It's an absolute classic work, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. It's the first part of that series that was made into a movie. And if you like movies, that's encouraging for guys like me. And it's the first book then that introduces us to the Pevensey family. Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy. Four siblings that have been sent off to the English countryside in World War II. They live in London, but it's World War II. London's being bombed. And so they've been sent off to live with a relative in the countryside. And it's whilst they're in the countryside that for the first time they go into a mere wardrobe and enter the incredible world of Narnia. A place of mystique, a place of wonder, 
a place of amazement and a place that starts to unfold to them that is housed by Aslan the Great Lion himself as they enter through a mysterious wardrobe. Well, as I consider this text this week, I was reminded of a scene early on in the book when Lucy for the first time enters the wardrobe and for the first time enters Narnia and then has the challenge of trying to convince her siblings that Narnia exists. It's a really wonderful scene. You see, they're all playing as siblings with hide-and-seek. I grew up in the country in, in England, and so I'm aware there's nothing to do. So what do you do? You play things like hide-and-seek, and that's what these guys are doing. They're playing hide-and-seek as four siblings, and Lucy decides that she's going to hide in the wardrobe, and as she tries to push to the back of the wardrobe, she pushes all the way through the wardrobe and enters this wonderful world of Narnia. She meets the fawn, she checks out the play. She's, she's really in wonder and amazement of this magical land of Narnia. And as she comes back through the wardrobe, her first words as she lands on her feet is, Here I am! You see, for her, time has gone on. And so she assumes they're probably panicked about her by now. Where is she? And yet for the other three siblings, time hasn't moved on at all. And so all they hear is, you know, here I am. And they go, all oh, right, I thought we were playing a game. You know, nice one. Found you. And she starts to explain to them, listen, no, I've been gone for hours. Did you not tell? And they're like, no, what are you on about, Lucy? And she starts to explain to them, I've been to Narnia. I've been to this incredible world, a place of mystique, a, a place of wonder, a place of amazement. And they go, in effect, Lucy, are you going mad? And she's like, no, it just came through this wardrobe. And they're like, right, let's check it out. And so they enter into the wardrobe. Like, Lucy, there's just coats here. There's the back. At one point, they go around the back of the wardrobe and they start knocking it. And they go, Lucy, you are clearly losing your mind. And at the end of that scene, Lucy then is busy still trying to explain to them, Narnia exists. There's this incredible world that I want you to come to. And yet to her dismay, the siblings all walk away in disbelief because all they can see is a wardrobe. They can't see a Narnia. They can just see a wardrobe. Well, you know, in this text that we have before us today, I think it would be fair to say that Jesus, in this moment, can be likened to Lucy. Jesus is busy seeking to proclaim to us and to the disciples the glories of the kingdom of God. The glories of a place, the glories of a venue where his rule and reign and the advancement of his purposes are reigning throughout all things. A place of wonder, a place of mystique, a kingdom which he is building from one person at a time, from every tribe and language and nation, a kingdom that he will one day return for and will rule over for all eternity, a kingdom that is being built even now. And yet, even as he's explaining it to these disciples, even as he's explaining it to us, I think in all honesty, we can be likened to Peter, Edmund, and Susan. Because so often, all we can see is a wardrobe. Where we're on the Sydney trains on Monday morning making that commute, or we're stuck in the car making that commute, you can start to wonder... Is this it? Is this as good as it gets? Is this the kingdom of God advancing? Where? You read your paper. You turn on the news. 
You hear about all the things that ISIS are doing around the globe. The barbaric nature of which they're bringing Islam to bear on people and killing Christians in their thousands. You turn on the news and you see the crisis in Syria, how millions of people, millions of Syrians are being scattered around the globe as refugees. You start to follow and track the debate about homosexual marriage. And you realize that's so different to the created order that's talked about in this word, but everybody just turns a blind eye to it. And you start to wonder, is this it? Is, is this the kingdom of God advancing? Is this what he's talking about here from every tribe and language and nation that he's advancing, that nothing can stop Aslan on the move? Is this it? All I can see is a wardrobe. See, in all honesty, I think being a disciple of Jesus Christ can bring with it its own set of challenges, can't it? When we're truly brandishing the gospel and seeking to take it out to a world that needs it, I think it brings with it its own set of challenges. Disappointments at times. Confusions at times. Definitely discouragements. But you just think, we're seeking to brandish the gospel and we're seeking to take it out, but I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be happening. Is this as good as it gets? You know, these early disciples that were here actually listening to these parables, they weren't immune to those same types of feelings. I mean, here's the Messiah. He's the promised one who would fulfill God's purposes and usher in God's very rule. That's who he is. He's declared himself to be him, the one that's going to usher in the kingdom of God. And so the disciples would be understanding that surely there would be universal allegiance to him as he starts to proclaim that they would all respond to him. And yet people in their thousands don't. The scribes start to oppose Jesus. His own family start to oppose Jesus. They think he's gone absolutely mad. And the crowds, as the story continues, start to leave Jesus too. If you're not going to heal us, if you're not going to rebuke our demons, hey, I don't want to take them across and follow you. I'm not interested. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago was filled with discouraging moments, filled with confusions, filled with disappointments and disheartening moments. And the truth is, when we're on mission for Jesus, we can feel that too, can't we? We can feel the same things as they felt. Well, the great news about this text is that Jesus, as God incarnate, knows exactly how we're going to feel. He knows our frame. He knows how we're made. He knows exactly what it's going to be like to be his disciple. He knows exactly what it is like to understand, as a disciple of Christ, what it is to be discouraged and disappointed and confused. And so he very deliberately gives us here two parables with one message. And here's the message. That the kingdom of God is absolutely assured to expand and will inevitably triumph. That the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ himself and the advancement of his purposes, the kingdom of God is absolutely assured to expand and it will inevitably triumph. It will make it. One day when he returns, there will be people there for him, every tribe and language and nation and people. Everybody will bow to him and declare him as king. And he will rule over his people for all eternity. That's a pretty encouraging moment for these disciples. Seen correctly, it should be a very encouraging moment for us 
now as his disciples. Because like them, we can be prone to discouragement and disappointment on the road of discipleship too, can't we? See, this parable is completely different in accent to the first two. Parables 1 and 2 that Riley and Mark did, the accent is on our responsibility, isn't it? That's why you hear hear time and time again, pay attention to what you hear. Jesus is talking to us. He's He's talking to us. The accent is on our responsibility, what we need to do. We need to make sure that the soils of our hearts are receptive. And he gives us warnings and blessings. Warnings if we refuse to listen. Blessings if we do listen. That we'll be blessed 30-fold and 50-fold and 100-fold. The emphasis is on our responsibility and paying attention. But that's not the case in these second two parables. In parables 3 and 4, the accent is on his sovereignty. The accent is on what he's doing in building his kingdom. The accent and what is on what he will always do to build his kingdom. And when you see it as his disciple, I think what this text then brings us is hope and faith and joy and confidence for the road ahead. And why we need it, don't we? So I have two points this morning. Two points from two parables. One point for each parable. Points that I've personally learned from Jeff Perswell, the Dean of the Pastors College and our friend, he still remembers you all, by the way. He drove me crazy. He remembers most of your names. I said, so how is that individual? And you're like, how do you remember all these names? I can better remember my kids' names. How do you remember all these names? He really holds you with great affection, and I'm working hard to get him back out here. But I've learned these points from him, and I think they're points that will help us to unpack these parables and will, in turn, allow the Bible to function in the way it's meant to function in giving hope and joy and confidence to us as his disciples here in this moment. So number one, oh this is so sweet. Number one, the kingdom of God will proceed relentlessly aside from human power. Just let that settle into your souls. That's what we learn from this first parable, that the kingdom of God will proceed relentlessly aside from human power. Look again at verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. You know, scholars would categorize this particular parable as a parable of growth. And when you read it, and when you hear it for the first time, you can't help but be reminded of the parable of the sower, right? Because it appears, kind of in headline, to be exactly the same thing. And so in this parable, there is once again a sower. There is once again a seed to be sown, and there is once again a harvest or a fruit. It appears to be just like the first parable, talking about the sower and the seed and the fruit. And yet this parable is totally different. It's it's totally and utterly different. He might be using the same props, but it's to prove a totally different point. Because in this parable, the emphasis is totally different. The focus here is not on the sower. See, at the start of chapter 4, it's as if this sower is a professional, right? He's a sower. Not the sower with this guy. This guy is a scatterer. 
Scattering is just like having a go. You know what I mean? It's a farmer that's like, oh, look, I don't really know what I'm doing, but well, here we go. Let's pop a bit here. And that's what this guy is. This guy's just a scatterer. And so the focus and emphasis is not on the sower. The focus here is likewise not on the receptivity of the soil. It makes no mention at all to the receptivity of the soil. No, the focus here, the emphasis in this parable, is on the automatic nature of the harvest. He scatters, it grows, and he knows not how. The emphasis is on the automatic nature of the harvest. In verse 28, we discover that there is an earth that produces by itself. Now the Greek word there, which I don't usually talk about, but the Greek word there is automatae. What word do you think we get out of that? We get the word automatic. That's what he's talking about here. Here we have a soil which grows by itself. It's automatic. It is a a self-producing soil. That's the Saviour's point. The guy scatters and then the seed grows. It just happens. It happens independently. It happens by itself. There is an independent activity going on that is overseen by none other than God himself, independent of everything else. If you notice in verse 27, notice the contribution of the sower to the growth. The Saviour goes out of his way to emphasize the contribution of the sower. It's not complex. The sower's contribution is zero. Nothing. Look verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So we have here a picture of a guy. He's having a go. He's scattering some seed. And it doesn't matter whether he stays awake and sort of oversees this thing with like a small greenhouse, or whether he sleeps. The seed just grows. The seed does its thing. The seed, the seed grows automatically and what he contributes to is absolutely nothing. He doesn't cause the growth. He doesn't contribute to the growth. He doesn't even understand the growth. I love that phrase. He knows not how. He's scratching his head. I have no idea how this thing grew. The emphasis in this parable isn't on the sower. It isn't on the receptivity of the soil. That's not even mentioned. The emphasis here is on the grower. It's on the one who gives the harvest. It's on the one of the Lord of the harvest. The one who sees the growth. The one who brings the harvest. And what Jesus wants us to know then as his disciples, as we go about brandishing the gospel and taking it out to our generation and our communities, is that this is how the kingdom of God works too. So do we have a part to play? Sure. We get to scatter. We get to scatter the gospel. Are we professionals at it? I don't think so. We're just having a go. We're just trying. And so we take the seed and sometimes we miss the opportunity. Sometimes we even spill a bit. But other times, hey, we manage to get it out and we're just trying our best. We just try and throw the gospel out where we can. We're not professionals, we miss opportunities, we overcook opportunities, sometimes we're even sleeping after the opportunity. But what God wants us to know is although we're called to scatter the seed, ultimately, he's the one that brings the growth and he's the one that creates the harvest. Behind all things is him. He is the one that is growing his kingdom. 
He is the one who will precede the kingdom's growth relentlessly aside from human power. Although we scatter, He is the one that is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one that brings the growth. And so after we share the gospel, whether we sleep or whether we keep talking to that person for the rest of our days, doesn't make any difference. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who in His sovereignty brings the growth. My friends, if we pay attention to what we hear here, this should be a happy discovery. C.H. Spurgeon, when he's talking about this, when he realises this for his own life, when he goes through this moment, when he realises that, that God is ultimately at the source of all salvation, he says as follows. This is his story. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrines of sovereign grace in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burned into my soul as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown all of a sudden from a babe to a man and that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once and for all that clue to the truth of God. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. it. must have been a good one. And the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord, thought I. But how did I come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures, but how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith, And so the whole doctrines of grace opened up before me and from those doctrines I have not departed to this day. And I desire then, listen, I desire then to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Isn't that wonderful? He had thought, as did I in my life at one time, that he had just done it all himself. That he had sought the Lord. But as he heard a message that he didn't even think was very good, he got to thinking and realised... You know, I did seek the Lord. But if he did not seek me first, I would have never sought him. In a moment, the doctrines of sovereign grace came alive to him. He realized, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. And so unless God sought me, I would never be alive. Unless God called my name, I would have never called his. And even the gift of faith is a gift gift, even the faith that I exhibited to respond to the Lord, which brought my salvation, even that faith, as Ephesians 2 says, is a gift. In a moment, that came alive to Mr. Spurgeon, and I remember the day for me and the season for me, when it came alive in my life as well, as I realized, this is all the Lord. And what Jesus wants us to know here in this first parable is that mission works like that as well. We are called to scatter the seed. We're called to brandish the gospel and take it out. And we must, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But how are they to call on one in whom they've not heard? And how are they here they're not believed? And so on and so forth. As we read about in Romans 10. We have a part to play. We, we must tell people about the gospel. But what Jesus wants us to know here is that ultimately, he's the one that lies at the bottom of it all. He's the one who gives the growth. He's the one who gives the harvest. we just got to scatter. But then all responsibility resides on his shoulders. And what a happy discovery that is, don't you think? See, it can be so easy in evangelism, I think, to be paralyzed in our mission. So often I think we're paralyzed in our mission because we over-realize our responsibility. We think that I've got to do this and I've got to do this and they didn't respond. I've got to tell them again. Oh, they still didn't respond. I've got to tell them again. I've got to argue them in. Whereas this parable says, you know what, now, just scatter. And then if you do a good job, that'll be great. If you do a bad job and you fall asleep, that's okay too. Because God's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who will take that seed and see it grow. And you'll look on and think, I don't even know how that happened. Yeah. But that's because the Lord is at work. He's the one who will grow that seed. He's the one that will take it. He's the one that will do things that you can never do. You can never bring somebody from death to life. You can never bring somebody who is blind and make them see. You can never do those things. But in a moment, God can. He's the one who brings the growth. He's the one who brings the harvest. We need not be paralyzed in our mission. And likewise, we need not be discouraged in our mission. See, sometimes I think we can be discouraged in our mission because we believe minimally subconsciously, I should be doing more. You know, yeah, I've told them the gospel once, I've told them twice, I've told them three times, but they still haven't responded. What should I do next? I must be doing something wrong. My friends, if we're understanding this parable correctly, here's what we need to do. We need to be faithful to scatter. But then we must be faithful to trust. The kingdom of God will proceed relentlessly aside from human power. We need to do what we can to scatter, but ultimately all salvation and all glory will go to him because he's the grower. He's the one who will bring the harvest. And as people then grow in their faith and in their love for Jesus Christ, what we should be doing is looking on going, that's incredible that even happened. I don't think I even did a great job of sharing the gospel with them. I tried. You know, they came over that day and I sort of half shared the gospel with them. And then they heard my kids screaming and I reacted badly to my kids. I thought I'd blown it. But amazingly, they stand here today worshipping Jesus Christ. I don't know how that happened. I'll tell you how that happened. It was not about you in the first place. It was always about him. God sovereignly brings people into your life. He sovereignly ordains you to scatter. You then, in the power of Jesus, scatter. And he then uses that seed to seek growth and bring a harvest. And we should just be the ones scratching our heads going, I don't know how that works, but I see it does. Isn't it a happy discovery? It should take the pressure off us in the right sense. It doesn't cause us to abdicate our responsibilities to scatter. We must do that. But when it comes to the growth, that's the Lord's business. And what a happy individual it is to entrust all our scattering to, don't you think? The God who can change their lives in a moment. The one who can bring about growth in a moment. The one who can do things that you never can. My friends, the kingdom of God will proceed relentlessly aside from human power. That's not all we see here. Number two, the kingdom of God will triumph gloriously 
in spite of humble appearances. The kingdom of God will triumph gloriously in spite of humble appearances. Look with me again at verse 30 to 32, the second parable. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You know, Jesus really brings this last parable about in a totally different way to all the other parables. He brings this one about and introduces this parable very elaborately than all the other parables. It engenders our imagination. He invites us to ponder. And he invites us to ponder one specific question with what can we compare the kingdom of God? You know, I can't help but think as a preacher that he probably paused at this moment because he's honestly asking the disciples to think. Disciples, you tell me. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? And with that pregnant pause, I can't help but wonder what must have been going through the disciples' mind in this moment. I mean, we've got to know them by now, right? James and Peter and Andrew and John. We start to walk with them. We start to get to know their personalities. Who knows then what must have been going through their minds? The kingdom of God? Oh, I know! Okay, what do you know? What's going on in your mind? Let's tell me. Well, I know. James has got an idea. Let's listen up. I think the kingdom of God, it would be like a great city. It would be like Jericho, something like that. There would be great walls around it. There would be people within it that are in a happy place, that are banqueting and feasting, that are worshipping the Lord. And they're protected through these great walls. And it would probably be incredibly ornamental because this is the kingdom of God. Hang on, Peter's got another idea. Peter, what's in your mind? Well, I think the kingdom of God would be like a great army. It would be like a, a great and fierce army that, that can conquer all things, that come in with their spears and their swords, that come in with their mighty banners, and whatever they take on, it will conquer all things. I reckon the kingdom of God is like a great army. John's got a thought as well. Oh, I reckon the kingdom of God would be like a great temple. You know, I mean, we had David and Solomon's. They weren't bad. But I reckon the kingdom of God would be like a temple above all things. Inside it would drip with gold and myrrh and silver. Everything you see would just be splendid. And outside, this thing would just be huge and vast to point us to the greatness and worth of God. You can just imagine Jesus' face at this moment, knowing exactly what was going on in their minds. I think it would have been a thanks for playing guys moment. And here's what Jesus then tells them. Look, thanks for playing guys. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed. (laughs) You know, talk about a deflating moment for these disciples. Is this what we signed up for? A A kingdom that's like a mustard seed? See, to the Jew, a mustard seed was synonymous with smallness and insignificance. I thought I signed up for a kingdom that was like a great city or a great army or a great temple. A mustard seed? Is that the best you got? And Jesus goes on to tell him, yeah, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed 
And in verse 32, he helps them realize then that the mustard seed, and this parable in particular that he's seeking to give them, is a parable of contrast. What he's helping them see is the way it starts with the mustard seed isn't the way it ends. And so just like with the mustard seed, just like something that is being planted that is small and insignificant, one day a day will come when this mustard seed grows into something that is large and glorious, that houses the birds of the air, It starts tiny, barely seeable with the naked eye, but it finishes large and vast and great. And he wants to help them realize, so it is with the kingdom of God. It's going to start small. It's going to start insignificant. But one day, a day will come when it is large and great and truly glorious. One day it will house all the birds which were always meant to point to the different nations. It will house all the birds of the nations within it. People from every tribe and language and nation and people will house themselves and find their rest and their nesting place in my kingdom. For it will start small and it will appear to you insignificant. But behind the scenes I am building something truly great. And it will triumph gloriously. Despite of humble appearances, it will triumph gloriously because I'm building it. You know, for the disciples, what comfort and hope and confidence this must have brought to them, don't you think? I mean, Jesus began his earthly ministry in chapter 1, verse 15. This is what he said. These are the first recorded words in Jesus' ministry. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you don't know what's coming next, you're a happy disciple in this moment. The kingdom of God, that which we've been waiting for, is here. I'm in. This is the sound of revolution. This is the Messiah they've been waiting for. And so the disciples would have been invigorated by that. This is surely the launch of a great revolution. And as the disciples look on to start off with, it appears that this great revolution is taking place. He's healing the sick in their thousands. He's rebuking demons. Nothing can stand against this king of kings. As we're going to see in chapters to come, he even commands the waves to stop. This guy is a mighty king. He is surely the Messiah that we've been waiting for. They see this great revolution then as disciples gather great pace. Yet as time goes on, they also see what perceives to them as the wheels coming off it. First of all with the scribes, as they start to oppose Jesus, believing that he's demonized, and start to convince everybody else that that's the case as well. But his own family, they're saying, hey, you know, we know him. Remember when he was small, when he was like difficult to play with. We remember the guy. He's just a guy. We think he's gone mad. Can you let him out so we can look after him? The crowds that once gathered soon after this are going to start to turn away. They're not interested anymore. And they're then going to appear appear again on that last day, not saying, will you heal me, but crying out with a loud voice, crucify him. And before long, these disciples, with one of them having traded in Jesus, Judas Iscariot, and betrayed him, these 11 disciples would soon find themselves huddled in a small room together, fearful that they may be next to be crucified. And even when Jesus returned, 
even when he rose from the dead, something that obviously would have left these disciples ecstatic. He leaves them again. What do you mean you're going again? He leaves them again and he says, you know what? As the Father sent me, I now send you. You're on now. You're going to be my hands and feet on this earth. You're going to be my ambassadors. You know, during the ascension, if I was there, I'm trying to grab his feet. You know what I'm saying? Whoa, I'm not quite ready. Hang on. I'm only 20 years old. Get, get back. And then he tells him, you know what? No, you guys are ready. I want you to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Go do it, guys. And as they start doing it, it doesn't go well for them, does it? Because the Romans still want to conspire against them. The scribes still want to conspire against them. Paul comes in and starts ravaging the church. And everything looks very bleak. Christianity is starting to be spread around the world primarily, at least to start off with, because of the heavy persecution in Jerusalem. There would have been many times when for these disciples they would have been disappointed and discouraged and confused. But imagine the joy it would have brought them as they remember back to this parable and as they remind each other, guys, this is exactly what Jesus said it would be like. It's just a mustard seed. It's not going to look impressive for the world. The world isn't going to be flocking around to see this. It's just going to start small. It's going to appear insignificant. But he's building it, my friends. He's building it. Aslan is on the move. But don't be dismayed when it looks bleak in the here and now. What an encouragement this parable must have been to those early disciples. And seeing correctly what comfort and hope and confidence this should be to us too. See, so often the kingdom of God can seem to us so much smaller and insignificant than we would anticipate, doesn't it? So often when we look on, all we can see is a wardrobe. Is this it? Islam is on the march across the earth. It doesn't seem that it can be stopped. Refugees all around the earth. Poverty all around the earth. Growingly in, in so many cultures in opposition to this word, standing against this word, starting to orchestrate into laws things that would stand in opposition to this word. Is this it? My friends, when we feel that, I want to encourage you. Remember the mustard seed. Remember the mustard seed. The kingdom of God will triumph gloriously in spite of humble appearances. We shouldn't just be dismayed when it just doesn't look that impressive. We just need to be faithful and keep scattering and God will do his work. So often in our lives, as we consider the kingdom of God, I think it's like a tapestry, but all we see is the underside. All we see is the knots and we wonder, what is God doing? But I want to encourage you, the one that's looking at the front of the tapestry knows exactly what he's doing. He's weaving all things together for his glory. He's weaving all things together for his good. He's weaving all things together for the advancement of his kingdom so that one day he will return in sovereignty and splendor for a people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. He's on the move. So my friends, I want to encourage you then. In the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, the one seeking to convince her siblings of Narnia is just Lucy, the youngest one of four. She could be making it up. She could be having a laugh. I don't blame them for not believing her. And yet the one seeking to communicate to us this morning as we gather around the word, 
The one seeking to convince us this morning of the kingdom of God is none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords himself. The owner of the kingdom of God, the builder of the kingdom of God, the one who knows all things is looking us in our eye and saying, despite what you see here, I am building my kingdom. I am on the move. And I'm on the move relentlessly. And so I want to encourage you then, my friends, would this give us then faith and hope and confidence for the journey ahead. The kingdom of God will proceed relentlessly aside from human power. He's the one that brings the harvest. He's the one that brings the growth. And the kingdom of God will triumph gloriously in spite of humble appearances. It's just a mustard seed. But one day it will be glorious. One day it will be massive. And on that day, we'll see what he's been doing all along. And we'll declare, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Will this give us courage and faith for the road ahead? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way your word works. It inspires us. It steals our soul. It encourages us and gives gives us faith for the road ahead. And Lord, we thank you for these two parables. Where the emphasis isn't on us, it's on you. And Lord, would we live in the good of it then? Would we live in awe of you and stand in amazement to you? Would it motivate us all the more to scatter the seed of the gospel? Knowing that you are the one that's at the bottom of it all. Lord, thank you then for allowing us the privilege of playing a part. Lord, would we find rest and hope and confidence in the reality that the overriding part is yours. Thank you, Lord. Amen.